0: Part of that is true, to be sure, but as we get to know a little bit more, we'll realize that that timeline, that outline, is actually in some ways inaccurate and certainly incomplete. What do we really know about church history? Additionally, perhaps you've noticed listening to different sermons or reading different books or reading different blog articles you notice certain names names of people or names of events as being significant in church history but what do you really know about them? have you heard of Jonathan Edwards? Augustine? Polycarp? Ulrich Zwingli? Elizabeth Elliot? Who really were these people? should you listen to what they had to say? should you emulate their lives? Or what about events? The Council of Nicaea, the First Crusade, the Marburg Colloquy, the Great Awakening. What were these events about? Why did they happen? How do they affect us today? We may have picked up bits and pieces here and there when it comes to the people and events of church history. I think we can all admit that without focused or purposeful study, we simply don't know about church history. We don't know very much about church history. Even what we think we know is often inaccurate and incomplete. But this is actually a good place to start in any study, to realize and to admit what you do not know. So that way you can start to learn. But unfortunately, we often don't do anything to fill this blank in our brains. We don't choose to study about church history. Now, why do you think that is? So I'm going to have a little bit of interaction now. I don't think our slides are going to work today. That's okay. You can just listen to my voice. Interact with me a little bit. Why is it that we might not think that the study of church history is worthwhile? What would you say? Yeah? I find for stuff, got very confusing what all names Yeah, it could be a little confusing. Sure. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it can be confusing. There's a lot of names. You're wondering who, who's the right person to teach you. Why else? Yeah, Emma. Do we really know what okay, there's the question of do we really know? And uh, how much can I trust the sources that are telling me what really happened? Why else? Yeah, Skip. Uh, when did church history first come into the, in, in the in when the began? Okay, are you asking me or are you putting that as a, as a reason? I, I'm asking. Okay. I guess you could say church history began with the church. So anytime you could see when the church was existent, you could look back and see what happened for the church. Oh, okay. Yeah. Why else, though, might people avoid studying church history? Sue? Excuse me. Maybe because it was such a long time ago and times were different then. So how would we relate those different times to now? Sure. Yeah, this was a long time ago. Different people, different times. How is that relevant now? Glenna, you were gonna say something. And what's going on now, people are more looking to what is happening now than rather going back so far. They're taking what is going on now and can, uh, I can't believe that. Right. So what is happening now? Right. I'm referring that to that time. So that's making it a little bit confusing to people. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and along the lines of what Sue was saying, but a lot of people are just focused on now. And perhaps they might think there's everything that we need is is with us right now. We've got the best, we've got the most advanced. Um, when it comes to understanding of the Bible or theology, so why would we go back to the past? One more, I think I saw your hand, Rich. Yeah. That's right, yeah, it doesn't seem very relevant, we're concerned with the now. What's happened in the past is, is not important. It's dead and gone. Yeah, I think those are many, many reasons. And certainly, as you're saying, which they apply to the study of history in general, but also even of church history. As Christians, we can still say, I'm not sure it's that profitable to study church history. I think we can put objections to the study of church history under three main categories, three main thoughts or statements. And one is that we just think it's too difficult. I mean, this was a little bit along the lines of what Judy was saying. Hey, this, this learning, this study, it's going to take work oh, I don't know if I really want to put forth the effort in that. Especially if we don't think there's much benefit to be had. We don't want to put forward the work into the study. And we can also excuse ourselves by saying, I don't know where to start, or there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different sources. Where do I begin? I'm not sure what to trust. And I get that to a certain extent. The good news is that there's actually a lot of great and trustworthy sources when it comes to getting acquainted with church history. Some of the trusted teachers or organizations you know today, they have church history resources. They've produced books. They've produced lessons. Hopefully, you're getting that right now, even in the Sunday school class. So it's not as inaccessible as it might seem. And yes, it will take some work. Yes, any kind of study is going to take work. But learning church history is more doable than ever, actually. And it will prove to be profitable. The difficulty is not really a good excuse. I think another reason, though, why we might avoid studying church history is that we're afraid. We are afraid of what we might find if we study church history. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I think this comes in at least two ways. We might be afraid that the past only contains shameful and discouraging episodes that we'd rather not know about. And this can happen if you already have a certain concept of what church history consists of. If you think church history is mostly dominated by ignorance, by bad practices, erroneous beliefs in Christ, well, then it makes sense that you wouldn't want to study it. I like an analogy I heard once in a church history DVD talking about in our own personal lives, you can think back maybe to your teenage years, imagine that somebody finds an old family photo of you as a teenager. Maybe you're wearing braces, maybe you have this really awkward haircut, and they say, Oh look, it's you! <laughs> when you, someone would see a photo like that of, the, of you, what would you want to do with that photo? <laughs> yeah, get rid of it, take it back from them, cover it up, burn it, throw it away. We're often embarrassed by certain parts of our personal histories. We'd rather not remember them, we'd rather not anybody else know about them. and Some people might think that way about Christian history, church history. We can say erroneously, oh, Christian history, or at least early church history, that belongs to the Catholics. Why would I want to study that? That's just full of error. Well, the beautiful fact is that's actually not the case. That's not the case with the early church, and that's not the case with church history as a whole. There are, yes, embarrassing and sad moments in our heritage as Christians. Even some of our Christian heroes, like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, they end up saying and doing things that we would be ashamed of. They're not biblical. But is it any different with the people that we meet in the Bible? I mean, look at Peter, denies Jesus Christ in a moment of um, great need. Jesus' great need. David, King David, commits adultery and murder. These are terrible things, and they're admitted in the Bible. But do we just say, oh, I don't have anything to learn from Peter. I don't have anything to learn from David. Not at all. Rather, we learn both from their mistakes, where they failed, but we also find we learn from their success, by their obedience, by their perseverance and faith. We take courage in how God used them despite their failures, how God was gracious to them despite their sin. So, yes, church history has dark episodes, but God has always kept his light shining. He's always preserved his truth. He has always preserved his elect, even when the world, or most of the world, seems to be going apostate. You remember God's words to Elijah when Elijah was despairing about the state of his land. 1 Kings 19, Elijah asked God to take his life because Elijah says, I'm the only believer left. I'm the only true prophet left, and they're trying to kill me, so just take my life, God. Do you remember what God said to him in reply? That's right. He said, you're not the only one left, Elijah. He said a a number of things, but that was one of the things. I'll I'll actually read to you what Paul recounts about the event in Romans 11, Romans 11, 2-5. Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture, or what the scripture says in this passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. What is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, Paul says, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Really? One of the ways to think about church history is the continued fulfillment of this promise of God I will preserve a faithful remnant. Until the end of the age, God promised that he would do this. He would preserve, he would uphold, he would use a faithful remnant. And would it be a weak and failing remnant at times? It would, but it would also be a persevering and a victorious remnant, one that brought glory to God. So, of course, we would find profit in studying about that remnant. So, we should not feel afraid that church history only has discouragement for us, not at all we'll find great encouragement. We might be afraid, though, for a different reason, maybe actually an opposite reason. We are afraid to study church history because of how guilty it will make us feel. We can be afraid of studying the past because we think all those past believers are just going to show us up. I mean, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher at 16. William Carey, that great missionary, he taught himself four languages while working as a shoemaker. And countless Christians, especially in the early church, they were martyred for their faith. We can hear about those kinds of things and say, man, I'm like the worst Christian ever. What am I doing for the cause of Christ? In some ways, that's a healthy thought. (laughs) Just as we study the Bible and we see mighty acts of faith and endurance by God's saints, reading church history should shake us out of a sinful or lazy complacency and redirect us to joyful service to Christ. That being said, we should also recognize that God has given different gifts to different people at different times, and these gifts were not necessarily equally distributed. In fact, we know that they are not. You remember the parable of the talents? This is in Matthew 25. There are Several striking aspects to that parable, but one of them is that the master, who represents God, he didn't give the same amount of talents to each slave. Do you remember what he gave them? Oh yeah, close. Five, two, and one. Eventually it would become ten and four. He gave to one five, one one two, and one (laughs) slave had one. And the scripture says that this was each according to his ability. But when the master returned, what was the basis for how he assessed each slave? It wasn't how many talents did you get me, but what? Yeah, what they did with what they were given. Or we could say it this way. It was about their faithfulness rather than their impact. And that's even what the master says to the righteous slaves, right? Well done, good and Faithful slave or servant. And this is an important concept when it comes to understanding church history. Faithfulness is more important than impact. That's certainly true for people in the past, and it's true for us now. Probably some of the most faithful slaves of God, whether in Christian history or now, they are ones that you and I will never hear about. They didn't make a huge impact. They weren't the key characters that the historians took time to record, but these Christians were true lovers of God, devoted to the scriptures, glad to share with the lost, faithful in prayer, and God used them in his own way to silently and secretly change the course of history. They played an important part. And that's true for us, too. We may not have a huge or noticeable impact, but we can be faithful just like men and women were in the past. So we should not fear the godly conviction that comes from the testimony of God's recorded faithful, nor should we feel guilty for not having the exact same gifts or impact as they did, because it's ultimately about faithfulness with what we've been given. We can allow them to prod us on in that way. We don't have to fear comparing ourselves totally. I think there's one more main reason for why we avoid studying church history, and it's one of the main ones that you mentioned. It can be a matter of, oh, I think it's just too hard, or I'm afraid of what I'll find. But thirdly, we just don't believe there's much benefit in it. Not that much benefit in studying church history. I mean, we might say, this is mere trivia. I'm not playing Bible Jeopardy anytime soon, so why study this old, musty history? Or these people are so disconnected from me. Different time period, different languages. Most of them are not even Americans. What do I have in common with these people of the past? Or we trust in the advancements of our own time. They were more primitive back then. They didn't know what we know, how, know now. Why should I look to them for spiritual insights when they were so backward? Isn't the present time the time of greatest biblical st- scholarship and instruction? I've got so many teachers. Why go to the past? Or perhaps we might even say, we've got the Bible. This is God's divinely inspired, inerrant, sufficient word. Why would I want to study anything else? Even church history. Are you saying God's word is not enough? Well, it is true that the Bible is all we need. And thank the Lord. If somehow all the records and writings of church history were lost, we would still have more than a sufficient resource in the scriptures so that we can joyfully and effectively live our Christian lives. Unlike Judaism, Islam, or Roman Catholicism, we do not exalt tradition or history as an authority alongside or superior to the scriptures. It's a sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone, a core doctrine. However, there is great benefit in understanding and remembering church history. This is not mere trivia, nor is it the record of a people totally disconnected from us. Really? Church history is the record of God's family. Our family, if we are in Christ. Have you ever found that sometimes, even when you meet someone for the first time, maybe it's in church, maybe it's somewhere else, you can usually tell whether they're part of your same spiritual family. I say usually, sometimes you can tell. You see it in the way they act you hear it in the way they talk there's just this shared affection for the things of God for Christ for scriptures for holy living for the greatness of God and so even if it's your first day with that person when you sense this about someone else what do you feel in your heart towards that person love you feel love you feel kinship you feel even trust because you say, we have a bond in Christ. I don't know you that well, but I know you're a brother or you're a sister because I see your love for the Savior. And it's no different with the men and women of church history. These people are dead, many of them, but they're our family. Even if we don't speak the same languages or live in the same countries, we have strong bonds with them, the strongest, actually. We feel the same love for God as they did, and we feel the same struggles with sin in the flesh as they did. And we can learn from them. Not as a source of authority independent from the Bible, but as affirmation of the truths of what the Bible already teaches. And isn't this an experience we see all the time in the present? I don't know if any of you have had the experience of visiting Christians in another country often these Christians are poor Emma and I got to experience that when we got to visit Ukraine one time when a Christian comes back from visiting another country that's not as well off as our own what's usually one of the one of the things that you hear that person report hey those believers there they are so poor yet they are so what uh, a number of different things I hear you guys say but loving kind hospitable happy They are so full of joy. Certainly that was our experience when we went to Ukraine. And this shows us something about ourselves, doesn't it? We find it remarkable because so often here in our prosperous country, what's the problem? We are discontent. We have a materialism that makes us discontent. We feel like we need to have a certain level of income or a certain number of possessions or a certain life situation for us to be happy. But when we go somewhere else and we see how joyful believers are without those things, we say, oh, I didn't even realize how off track I had gotten. Now, discovering this is not a new revelation. It's what the Bible had already said. But it becomes clearer to us by the testimony and lives of these fellow believers. Points us back to the scriptures and what is the scriptures' bankable truth. And this is part of the reason why God gave us the church. He's actually designed us to encourage and confront and instruct one another because we have blind spots. Without someone else's perspective on my life, without their testimony, without their example, you and I might fall into debilitating sin, joy-robbing sin, and not even realize it. Foolish living. This is why God gave us the church. And church history is just an extension of that kind of beneficial fellowship. In church history, in studying church history, we get to experience with these departed believers many of the same things we experience with the believers who are still with us now. They encourage us, they rebuke us, they instruct us, but with one powerful and unique difference. How is the perspective of a believer from church history different from the perspective of a fellow believer maybe in your church? What's so different about someone from church history versus someone in your same church? Okay, one is dead, one is alive, but I want to point to something else. Yes, yeah, Steve. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, different times and different cultures deal with different um, problems. So, okay. Yes. Uh, I want to say more about that. Steve mentioned that different kinds and different cultures deal with different problems. and one way, that's true. and another way, it's the same problems. But because it comes in a different context, there's a perspective on it that we don't normally see that becomes really valuable for us. When we have a perspective from a different time and place, it shows us, because we know that the Bible is true, the constancy of certain truths irrespective of culture or place or time, but it also exposes the unique biases or blind spots that a particular time, culture, or place might have. Sometimes we see this about people in church history. We're like, man, they were so into this thing when clearly it's wrong. Well, that's because it was due to their culture at that time we need to realize that the same thing is often true of us. When we hear a perspective from somebody who's in a totally different time and culture, we say, oh, I didn't even realize this about my own time. I mean, imagine, imagine if we would use a time machine to bring one of the first century Christians who's about to be martyred into America in the present day. Now, besides marveling at our science and technology and our prosperity, what do you think he would have to say about the American church? What's one thing? Okay, what do you mean? Like, what they went through and they were so faithful, what we have today, and more of the scriptures, and we are not as they will Yeah, I think there would be a little bit of reproof, right? Wow, we didn't even have the scriptures so available to us like you guys do, yet for some reason, you guys don't value it very much. Like, you're not even memorizing it. You're not even, like, thinking about it. Why is that? That'd be a powerful rebuke. What else? Yeah, again, the materialism. Wow, you guys are really prosperous, but I notice you guys seem to love it too much. I mean, don't you remember what Jesus taught us? That uh, if you really want to find your life, you will lose it, and that he's more valuable than any treasure? Why are you holding on to things so much? We were willing to die for Jesus. Why are you afraid to lose some of your possessions? What else? Think something else he might say, he or she might say, is like, wow, your culture is very immoral. Kind of like ours was. <laughs> we dealt with the same problems. It was slightly different, but in many ways the same. The way that homosexuality and transgenderism and immorality exist today, that's just like it back in our time. And you know what? You're gonna have to fight against it the same way that we did. We're gonna have to obey the commands of Scripture. We're gonna have to. Uh, cut off the sources of temptation that are bringing us down. And we're going to have to realize we're going to live very differently from our culture. And I'm sure there could be other things, but this time traveling Christian would show us that some things are the same, and some things, due to our culture, are different when they shouldn't be. This essentially is what church history does for us it's a kind of time travel. We hear the voices of brethren from the past, giving us a perspective on our own time that we could not get from another source. So, and, and along with that, we should not adopt the naive, what is ultimately evolutionary thinking that presumes that societies just get better and better over time. People get wiser and wiser. The church gets ri- more and more righteous. Our technology advances, to be sure, but sin The brokenness of the world, the deceitfulness of sin, these are constants since the time of Adam. And there's even one scripture that says that men actually proceed from bad to worse. (laughs) So don't think that things are going to get better in mankind over time. They're going to be the same or get even worse. No society, and no Christians in any society, will ever be perfect. Christians throughout every time, including our own, they have succumbed, to foolish and dangerous ideas without even realizing it. I mean, we see that in the church today, don't we, where people are adopting ideas because they say, oh, this is biblical, this is Christian, this is going to help the church, when a lot of people are saying, no, 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 that is not. People don't even realize it. We should not think that we have arrived spiritually and don't need any help. And so just as we hope to receive benefit from Believers, teachers from our own time period, we ought to realize we can get great benefit from people in the past. They also had particularly faithful men and women, particularly astute thinkers, particularly helpful teachers. We're not automatically superior to them. And actually, we should realize this God uniquely gifts men and women at different points in history. We do not have a monopoly on the best gifts. There actually might be more gifted people in times past. God puts different people in different times. We don't want to miss out on the gifts that God gave previously to the church that can still be reaped for our benefit today. So, we should dispense with this excuse that there's no relevance or no benefit in studying church history. Quite the contrary. Church history is part of our fellowship and encouragement in the saints. It never replaces the Bible, but it points us to the Bible and helps us understand and apply the Bible in a way that helps us be less blinded by our culture. So these common but misguided excuses for not investigating church history, it's too difficult, it's too scary, it's not beneficial. We should not be sucked in by them. They should not prevent us from enriching ourselves in such a study. So I focused mostly on the negative now, but let me turn over to the positive. This is the third question I said I wanted to investigate with you today to get to our biggest question, why study church history? I say there's great benefit in studying church history, but how exactly do you receive that benefit? What are the specific reasons that you should study church history, even the history of the early church? Well, I'm going to give you three main reasons. And I think we can see these reasons pretty easily if we just consider a parallel that we have in the Bible. Consider the first two books of the Bible. Old Testament, right? Genesis and Exodus. Who wrote them? Moses did. What genre are these books mostly? They are historical narrative. I heard some of you saying that. That's very good. They do contain some law in Exodus. But it's mostly historical narrative. In other words, a history account. Which means that we have history in the Bible. God loves history too. But what kind of history is presented especially in these first two books? History of what? The creation of the world? What else? What? Okay, we have creation. There's a a fair amount about creation in the first Um, chapters of Genesis. Ancestry of whom? Israel. We get the history of the beginning of Israel. So We get the beginning of the world. We get the beginning of Israel. And also another very important foundational event. Okay, the flood, certainly. And we can connect that with the creation narrative. How the world came to be. We have how the world came to be. How Israel came to be. And along the lines of how Israel came to be, how did Israel come to be um, outside of where they were for a long time? The second book is called Exodus, right? It's the history of the exodus of the people out of Egypt. And when did Moses write these two books? What was the event that Israel was facing when they received these books from Moses? Well, um, it's part of their receiving the law, that is true, but there's even a more specific event where they actually receive the books from Moses. He didn't finish writing the books until what event? Until they're about to go into Canaan. So yes, he does receive the law. Moses received specific commandments from Sinai, but the Torah, that we call them five different books, but it's originally one book, the Torah, It wasn't finished until they're right about to go into the promised land. And that's when Moses says, I need to give this to you because I can't go with you. And God gave him that book. So they're about to go into Canaan. They're about to fight to take possession of the land. And God says, oh, I want you to remember these histories. So think with me for a moment. Why would God want Moses to give the people of Israel the history of creation, the history of Israel's origin, the history of the Exodus, right before they go in. What would be the benefit from that? To be prepared. Okay, to be prepared and how so? When there was a lot of different gods they're going to in you know, encounter in the there. Yeah, so if they have the law, mm-hmm. they would be able to know how to obey God and not forsake going into that nations, so that's where they, they have to compare with God's law and the adulterous nation. Okay. Yes, I think uh, you're saying something really valuable, Glenda. They're about to go into a situation that's not only going to be challenging because they're going to have to fight and face these very difficult situations, but they're going to be tempted to go away from God and even follow the gods of the land. And it's not just the law where God says, "Don't do that," and here's the penalty if you do that, but the histories are going to show why that's not a good idea. Uh, Dwayne. I see you want to say something. Right, so a big part of these histories would be to remind them of the past faithfulness of God so that they can continue to hold to God and not depart and go the way that some of their forefathers did and, and what were the consequences? <laughs> they were judged. I think we could summarize the benefit of the history components of the Torah as it, was, it would help the people understand origins, why things are the way that they are. It would give them encouragement. They could look to what God did in the past and trust him to provide for the future, and it would give them warning. They would also see what God did in the past when his people strayed so that they would learn not to do the same things and not to embrace the same kind of wrong thinking and it's the same for church history by studying church history we receive three specific benefits we understand origins why things are the way that they are we receive encouragement look at God's faithfulness in the past we see how God will be faithful in the future and then we also receive warning we say oh I don't want to go that way because this is what this is how people were led astray and these were the consequences I want to hold fast to the Lord And let me explore each of those with you a little bit more. The book of Genesis, this is under the category of understanding origins, the book of Genesis is all about this, right? From the book of origins consider what was clarified for the Israelites about why the world is the way that it is. Why are we here? Why does this world exist? Why do people speak different languages? Why do people do evil things against one another? All these questions are being answered by The book of Genesis, understanding origins. Even more specific things like, why can't we take the land of Edom, Moab, or Ammon? We're going in to take the Canaanites' land. Why can't we take these guys' land? You guys remember why? They were whose family? They were, by connection to Abraham via Lot, they were connected in such a way to um, Abraham that God said, I've given the land over to them, you're not allowed to take it. Even if they oppose you, you can't go and take their land. That's not for you. It was a question of origins. And the same thing is true conversely about taking the Canaanites' land. Why are we allowed to take the Canaanites' land? Well, you see explanation also given in Genesis, partly through the curse on Ham's descendant that's given in um, the beginning part of Genesis, but also the explanation of God gave them a certain amount of time to repent of their evil, and they wouldn't. So he said... When the iniquity of the Amorites has been complete, I'm going to judge them and you're going to be my agent of judgment. So these explanations come via understanding origins. It helped Israel understand what was going on and also be able to act more wisely and with confidence in the situation in which they found themselves. And the same thing is true for us. When we study church history, we can gain a better understanding and we can act more confidently as we understand where things came from, why things are the way that they are. Uh, Consider some of these questions related to origins that maybe you've heard, maybe you've had about church history. How did the Catholic Church become so powerful and widespread? Why do we do church services the way that we do them today? Why do Catholics and Greek Orthodox pray to saints and to Mary? Why does the term fundamentalist carry such a negative connotation? Why did Europe become so atheistic in the 20th and 21st centuries? Why is the amillennialist view of eschatology so popular, and why did the great reformers believe in it if it's not biblical, as we claim here at our church? Why are there so many different sects in Protestant Christianity? Why do some Christians cling so tightly to the King James Version of the Bible? Why do some Christians sprinkle water in baptism and baptize infants? the answer to these questions can be found in origins. Or in other words, they can be found in the records of church history. And I hope eventually, as we go through the different modules of, of this course, to show you the answer to these questions. They do have a strong historical co- component. Not that these things have nothing to do with the Bible, but a lot of the answer has to do with history. So using church history to understand origins, why the world's spiritual landscape is the way that it is, It will help us act more skillfully and confidently as we seek to obey the Scriptures and follow Christ today. So that's first specific encouragement, understanding origins. A second is receiving encouragement. This is a constant theme in the Old Testament and New Testament. We are to remember how God did things for our forebears, for our fathers and mothers in the faith, so that we would be encouraged and emboldened to pursue God in righteousness. Think of, specifically, of Israel's situation. They're about to go into the Promised Land to initiate this conquest. What deliverances, what specific deliverances could they look back to in history to encourage them in this work? What are some of them? Exactly, the exodus, the mighty plagues, and the way that God brought Israel out from Egypt, not only preserving their lives, but with abundant wealth. They plundered the Egyptians the Bible says. That was a mighty deliverance. God says, remember this, remember this, so that you'll be encouraged to follow after me. What else? That's certainly true. And we'll talk about that more in the warning section. But yeah, the sins of the Canaanites and their judgment would also come on Israel. But in terms of deliverances, were there other mighty deliverances in the Torah? Sheryl? Yeah, crossing the Red, the Red Sea or crossing the Jordan also. Well, I guess that's in Joshua. But yeah, these times where God <laughs> splits open the sea and also destroyed the Egyptian army that was pursuing, that was another mighty deliverance. And God says, don't forget that. And you see lots of efforts to remember those histories in the Psalms and other places of the Bible to say, we remember, Lord, when you did this. That was to encourage them. We could say the same about Noah and the flood. God preserved his, this chosen family even when the rest of the world was judged. The provision of food and water when Israel was traveling through the desert wilderness in and around Sinai. Military victory against Og and Sihon on the eastern side of the Jordan. Each of these were deliverances that that were historically recorded, and they were not meant to be just interesting stories or facts. They were critical for the daily lives of the Israelites as they remembered God's faithfulness, how he displayed his faithfulness, or I'm sorry, his faithfulness, how he displayed his goodness and beauty to them It would move them, or it was supposed to move them to look to God as they went about this new and uncertain task of taking over the land of Canaan. We might not be going, conquering a land in Canaan, but our lives likewise are following difficult paths to an unseen future. How are we going to have the faith, the encouragement to hold fast to the Lord? Partly it is by remembering God's faithfulness in the past certainly those in the scriptures, but also even in church history, will move us to cling more confidently to God and his Bible. Let me give you one example piece of encouragement from church history. The fact that justification by faith alone for salvation, this is a doctrine that has never been fully squelched. From the beginning of the church until now, there, have always, there has always been a remnant that has believed in justification by faith. Like I said, we might assume that once the apostles disappeared, pff, well, nobody knew salvation after that. It's just the dark ages. But listen to this. Listen to this statement from a guy named Clement of Rome. This is the oldest surviving document that we have of the church outside of the Bible. This was from A.D. 90 to 100 somewhere in that last decade of the first century, Clement of Rome was a pastor, ironically claimed by the Catholics as their fourth pope. Listen to what he writes in one of his letters to the Corinthians. This is Clement. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works, which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Clement was not an apostle. He was not writing by the inspired Spirit of God. But he was one like Timothy, to whom the baton of faith had been passed by the apostles, who in turn passed the baton faithfully on to others. He faithfully passed on the truth of God's word and his gospel to the next generation. He did that, and the ones to whom he passed it did that, and it just kept on happening, not in every place, but in the places that God chose so that a remnant would be preserved. Even in the high medieval period, this is more than a 1,000 years after Clement, when there seems like a total darkness in Christianity. We have corrupt popes who are claiming infallibility, Man-made tradition has so corrupted the gospel in the official church by adding explicitly works to salvation, even in that time, there still remain true believers who passed on the revealed word of God and the gospel of justification by faith. People like Peter Waldo and the Waldensians in the late 1100s, or John Wycliffe and the Lollards in the beginning of the 1300s, and John Huss and the Hussites in the late 1300s. There is a tradition of corruption and apostasy in Christian history. We have to acknowledge that. There's also a heritage of truth that has never died out. After all, Christ promised in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? Never pass pass away. In Matthew 18, 16, on this rock of the apostolic confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will what? They will not prevail against it. They will not overpower it. Church history reminds us that God and his gospel are truly great. And we have a part to play also in faithfully passing on God's truth to the next generation. I can only give you one example for the sake of time this morning, but there are many other instances and people from church history that I hope to share with you for your joy, for your encouragement, for your emboldening in Christ. We want to learn from those who came before us want to be spurred on by them so that we also might be faithful as they were to God. So by studying church history, we come to understand origins. We receive encouragement under righteousness. But finally, we also receive warning. We receive warning. And we do need to receive warning from church history. And this is another noticeable feature of the Torah, isn't it? I think you even shared that with me when I asked you questions about it. What were some of the great failures of Israel's beginning history? or the world's beginning history, that God did not want Israel to forget so that they would be warned? What's one? What were some of the spectacular failures in trusting God or obeying God in the beginning of Israel's history, the world's history, that God didn't want Israel to forget? Yeah, straying away. Yeah, Danny. Golden calf, such a huge event, so terrible. They just received the law. They're seeing the mountain smoking and burning. Moses disappears for longer than they anticipated, and they say, Aaron, make us gods. We want to just do what all the other nations are doing. We don't know what happened to Moses. God was ready to destroy them, and it was only Moses' intervention, merciful intervention, that saved them. God says, don't forget that. You departed so easily. Don't forget. Don't do that again. What else? Yeah, Judy. They're talking about the serpent's temptation? Right. Yeah, so just going right back to the garden. Not believing the word of the Lord, but believing, hey, there's something good that you can get outside of obedience to God. This was something else that God said, look, look what happened based on that. Don't go that way again. We could point to many other experiences Israel had in the wilderness, complaining about water and food at various times and how that brought judgment, even though God said, I I was going to provide for you. Not going into the promised land when they were first told to, and what was the result? That whole generation was not allowed in. They died in the wilderness. Intermarriage with the people of the land at Baal Peor, what that resulted in. Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire before God. All these were recorded so that Israel would be warned. And it wasn't just the specific acts of rebellion or disobedience. It was the thinking. It was the principles behind that. For example, from Nadab and Abihu, it wasn't simply that, oh, we need to learn the lesson. God only likes a certain kind of incense. Guys, let's get that right. No. It's that God only accepts a certain kind of worship That is, you approach him on his terms, not cavalierly, not carelessly, but reverently. Israel saw in that instance, in that instance of judgment, a picture of the radical holiness of God, even displayed in the instant deadly wrath on careless indifference and hypocritical worship. That historical episode was to stick out in the people of Israel's minds so that they would not similarly drift into that kind of thinking and acting. And of course, the same is true for us. Biblical history would prod them back to true, careful, joyful pursuit of God. Church history does the same thing. Church history will warn us from acting naively or rebelliously in our Christian lives. Consider this poignant quotation. It's kind of long. You may have heard it before. It might shock you a little bit. This is from a certain pastor who was preaching about how Christians should treat the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the things that he says. I'll tell you who this is later. Reverence the august guest who has been pleased to make your body his sacred abode. Love him, obey him, worship him. Take care not to impute or take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to him. I have seen the spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons. I hope they were insane who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them. There has not for some years passed over my head a single week in which I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs. Semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me, and it may spare them some trouble if I tell them once for all that that I will have none of their stupid messages. Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute these blatant follies to the Holy Ghost. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, Trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this, that, and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Ghost by laying their nonsense at his door. Now, wow, that's pretty bold, right? Some might say that was too bold, but the person who said these words didn't think so. You might expect from that description that this is a pastor responding to the practice of the charismatics Pentecostals in our present day. But maybe some of you know, where does this quotation actually come from? This is from Charles Spurgeon, spoken in 1872. This is way before the charismatic or Pentecostal movements. But isn't that interesting? This British preacher in the 1800s, he had people in his own time making the same claims that we see around us all the time today. And his warning then to people at his own time is also relevant for us. He says God has not promised to speak through a new revelation, vision, voice, or impression. Rather, he speaks to us only through his word. While God did supernaturally speak to prophets in the Old Testament and prophets and apostles in the New Testament, They were given miraculous signs to validate their claims. Their prophecies always agreed with Scripture. They were never wrong with anything they foretold. They were laying a foundation, as Ephesians 2, 19-20 says, which has now been laid and doesn't need to be laid again. So if you feel like God is speaking to you outside of the Bible, then as Spurgeon says, it's still true, be sure that that revelation doesn't come from God. It either comes from yourself or from the devil. But you know what? This error of imputing false words and works to God the Holy Spirit is not a modern problem. It didn't even originate in Spurgeon's day. You can trace this heresy, this error, in all the Christian cults. Also in the medieval period, popes claimed new revelation from God. Even in the early church, believers in sound doctrine had to combat the behavior of a group called the Montanists, who claimed prophecies, visions, speaking in tongues, yet whose religious services were totally out of control and whose prophecies often did not come to pass. Does that sound familiar? Even in the first 100 years after the death of John the Apostle, false claims of new revelation were a problem in the church that had to be rebuked and warned against. But you know what? It didn't even originate at that time. Where did the problem of false prophecy, false words, actually originate? Yeah, Yeah. go back to the garden and the serpent saying, God said this? No, here's the truth. This is why you have provisions in the Old Testament law saying, you're going to have false prophets, but you'll know a true prophet from a false prophet in this way. Or in the New Testament writings, like when John writes in 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is not a new problem, and this is true for many things in church history. As we look, or yeah, as we consider many of the problems that the church faces, either from the world or the culture or just wrong doctrine and heresy, we see them around us today, but as we study church history, we will find that actually they, it's always been there. And in some ways we should be comforted by this, because it's as Ecclesiastes 1:9 says. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. we'll never arrive to say, Oh no, here's a problem that the church has never seen before. What do we do? No, the Bible is sufficient, and church history proves that. We've been seeing the same things again and again. There will be no experience in our own time that hasn't also appeared somewhere in the history of the Bible and of the church. No error, no temptation, no attack. They've all come before. They've just been repackaged. Therefore, if we can learn from those in the past how they stood up against these kinds of attacks and temptations, if we heed their warnings as they pointed back to Scripture and as they clung to Christ, that means we can also stand against these heresies and sins. We'll become that much more equipped to deal with the wicked and foolish thinking of our own age. All right. Well, in summary, Church history will benefit us specifically by explaining the origins of different aspects of our present spiritual landscape, by giving encouragement through God's demonstrated fulfillment of biblical promises, and by providing warning against the timeless weapons of the evil one and the world. While I'm really excited to go through this material with you, I have to tell you our course is only going to be an overview. I know I wish I could tell you everything that I know and have learned about church history, but I have to be selective for time considerations. And I also have to tell you, like any one who wants to be a good historian will tell you, that I and my sources are not free from bias. All of us have a certain bias. I've tried to mitigate that bias, I've tried to check myself, and I've assembled a number of sources, varied sources in books, magazines, and videos to give you a, a varied and hopefully quality historical perspective, but I am coming from a certain viewpoint. Nevertheless, I do believe that even providing a basic understanding of church history to you, it will prove edifying and it will help you and help us all as we continue as a church, the victory march toward Jesus and his coming kingdom. Tell you more about my sources next time and what additional resources you can pursue if interested, especially about the early church. But that's it for today. Next Sunday, we will travel to the first century for a closer look at the expanding and persecuted church, both under and after the apostles. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your promise being fulfilled. The reason we are here today is because you have preserved your gospel, you have preserved your church through all the centuries of history. And Lord, you were interested in continuing to do that through us, through our own faithfulness. So may, Lord, the testimony of the church, in times past. Indeed, spur us on, indeed warn us, indeed clarify for us why things the way they are. Lord, I pray that you would grant us that help by your Spirit as we continue to study these things together. Please bless the rest of the service today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you.